0: The Apostle Paul writes, indeed, God's word declares, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the Savior of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the Savior of death unto death, and to the other the Savior of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? The only one who is sufficient for these things is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one worthy of this pulpit is the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Psalm 85. As you're turning there, I'll add... I'm not worthy of this pulpit. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of this pulpit. Psalm 85. The psalmist writes in verse 1, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Beloved, the Lord has been favorable to his land. Indeed, the Lord has been so favorable to us, his people. What a blessed word, favorable. God has been so favorable to us, he's favorable to his people. It says here, unto thy land, that is, to his land. Beloved, in Adam we ruined our land. Indeed, we made a desolation of it, but the Lord favored his people. He translated us out of that dark, barren, desolate land where there is no life and translated us into his land, indeed, into the kingdom of his beloved son. And in him beloved, his beloved son, the Lord favors his people. My friend, if you have Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's enough. Indeed, that's everything. For if we have the Son, we have everything that matters. John wrote, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Now, where did he get that idea from? He heard the voice of his Lord Indeed, our Lord and Savior declaring, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I beg as a beggar to other beggars on behalf of everyone here this evening, that the Lord be pleased that he'll bless his word, not my words between them, his word. Beloved, the Lord's favored us with his gospel a place where we can hear his gospel preached and he's favored us with his salvation. A salvation undeserved, unearned, unmerited, indeed unlooked for. But he's given it to us. Beloved, he has favored us. He's favored us with the forgiveness of all our sins. He's favored us by giving us his word. And he favors us by feeding us and protecting us in the kingdom of his land. Oh, how we ought to be a thankful people. The Lord has favored us indeed, and we enjoy freedom in his land, for he has brought back the captivity of Jacob. Now, the psalmist calls us here, and certainly it is God's word, sets forth that that is... Our name. We're called here under the name of Jacob because that's who we are by nature. In Adam, we have the nature of a traitor, of a supplanter. That's who we're born into this world as. You see, we sold ourselves into captivity, into the captivity of Satan, into the captivity of self and bondage to the law, the bondage of sin. But our Lord Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. Look over there with me and keep your place in Psalm 85 and turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. Now this is a prophecy of our blessed Savior who came into the world to save sinners. Jacob. Verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Beloved, our Lord has led captivity captive. Nobody enjoys freedom like a former slave. There's an old Negro spiritual written in 1865, and it goes like this. Way down in the valley, praying on my knees, told God about my troubles and to help me however he please. I did tell him how I suffer in the dungeon and the chain and the days were with head bowed down and my broken flesh and pain. I did know my Jesus heard me, because the Spirit spoke to me and said, Rise, my child, you're mine, and you shall be free. I done appointed one mighty captain for to marshal all my hosts and to bring my bleeding ones to me, and not one shall be lost. Beloved, nobody enjoys freedom in Christ like his people. Slaves, captives, indeed the prisoners he came to set free. Beloved, he's favored us with freedom. Turn back with me to Psalm 85. We'll pick up there. Verse 2, the psalmist continues Thou, O Lord, hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Now, who can forgive like God can? Who shall and will forgive like God? Beloved, God has forgiven the iniquity of His people. Oh, the depth, the wretchedness of our iniquity and sin against God. Indeed, our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Beloved, we've committed horrible acts of rebellion against our God. We've spoken blasphemy against His name. Indeed, we've rebelled against His rightful place in our lives as our Lord and God. And yet, beloved, God has forgiven the iniquity of His people. I think about how hard it is for me to forgive somebody when they've lied to me. I've had a hard time with that. It's hard in the flesh, because I think to myself, boy, they must think pretty lowly of me. Joseph's so stupid, he'll believe that. Or even worse, when someone lies about Sandra. I remember when we were in Merida and the wife of a so-called, I suppose you call him a free will missionary, said that Sandra lied about something that I knew she had perfectly, faithfully reported. I have a hard time with that. Not only when somebody lies to me, but when you've lied about Sandra and spoken evil of her about what she's done. When I think of someone who would lie to me or about me or especially lie about Sandra, to forgive them seems next to impossible for me. Well, I'll, I'll forgive you, but not like God forgives His people. And what do I mean? Well, not only have we lied to God, and through all those years of unbelief we lied about Him and what He's done. We've, we lied for years about our blessed husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we've done? I'm so thankful that even though that kind of forgiveness that forgives and forgets is impossible with me, (laughs) it's not impossible with God. I mean, I'll forgive you if you wrong me. And maybe I won't bring it up again. But it's in my mind and I can't forget it. Beloved, God's forgiven and forgotten all of our wrongs against Him. And all our sin and iniquity he will remember no more. Indeed, he says of the wrongs of his beloved people, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Young's uh, literal translation of Psalm 85, verse 2 reads, Thou hast borne away the iniquity of thy people. That word borne means carried. Well, but he's carried our iniquity away. He's carried it away. Like the scapegoat, the high priest put his hands on the head of that scapegoat and transferred the sins of the people. He confessed the sins of Israel on the head of that scapegoat. And the appointed man, that fit man, took the goat into the wilderness and he never came back with that goat. Those sins were never seen again. That's what our Lord has done in the forgiving of our iniquity He's carried our sins away. He's forgiven our sins so completely that no one will ever see them again. Look there again in the latter part of verse 2. The psalmist says, The Lord has covered all. Like that sink in. Sometimes we read the Bible too fast. And uh, more often than not, Preacher's preaching too fast. (laughs) The psalmist says here, the Lord has covered all of our sin. He's covered every sully sinful stain. He's covered every diseased defect of our sin. He's covered every wrinkle and spot of it. They've all been covered under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when the psalmist says our Lord has covered our sins, it's not like he covered our sins with something. And they're still there. I mean, he didn't sweep them under the rug. And all you got to do is lift up the rug and you'll see them still there. Beloved, that's not how our sins are covered. God's not playing hide and seek with our sins. When our sins were put under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like a stain that's been covered over and washed out with bleach. And the stain has been removed. Our sins are not there. Our sins are gone. They do not exist in God's sight. They're covered. They're gone. Beloved, only God can do that. Only through the blood of our Lord and God Jesus Christ can our sins be covered. Our Lord and God Jesus Christ, and as we can read in the book of Hebrews, our Lord and God Jesus Christ has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has purged us from all our sins. And we see here in the last word of verse 2, the word uh, Salah. Now, we don't read that word out loud because it's a musical term, which means to pause. It also might serve as a reminder, a good reminder, to stop and consider what you just read. Now, consider what we just read here, beloved. God has forgiven the iniquity of His people. Our Lord and God has covered all our sin. Indeed, He has favored His people in Christ. Look there in verse 3. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. As soon as sin is removed... God's anger is removed too. That which made him angry. That which violated his holiness is gone. And his anger is gone too. Now, God's anger against sin is holy anger. And it's real. More real than the pew you're sitting on right now. The psalmist writes, "...of the fierceness of thine anger." friend, the fierceness of his anger. It's a real anger. Well, how can a holy God not be angry with sinners like you and me? That's that's a good question. Where did that anger go? Young's literal translation of verse 3 reads, Thou hast gathered up all thy wrath. Indeed, God has gathered up his anger at sin and laid it on His beloved Son, our substitute. Our Heavenly Father poured out the fierceness of His anger on sin, a holy, righteous, fierce anger, unmixed with mercy, and He poured it out on our substitute. And now God's anger is taken away from us because it was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, He's taken away all His wrath Verse 4. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Now, before God can do anything for us, he's got to do something for himself. There's got to be a sacrifice offered to God that removes sin, that makes God, God's anger toward us to cease. And, beloved, that's exactly what he did in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin, and now that sin is G-O-N-E, gone. And as a result, God's anger toward us has everlastingly ceased. God has turned away from his anger, and now we've got to be turned. That is, to turn away from our anger and sins and turn to God. Friend, God is reconciled. Now you be reconciled. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He writes, We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. God has been reconciled. And as an ambassador for Christ, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Be ye turned. Surrender. Put up the white flag. Put away your weapons. The Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished our warfare. Peace has been made by his blood and righteousness. Surrender. The war is over. Reconciliation has been made. It's finished. There'll be no more war. Surrender. Turn to Christ. Now, this turning to Christ, this turning to God, is a work that only He can do. When the psalmist says, Turn us, it speaks of that salvation that is of the Lord. And it's the only salvation there is. That is, from its very beginning to its expected end in glory, salvation is of the Lord. Friend, only God can turn a sinner to Christ. In fact, it would be easier for the Ethiopian to change his skin or the leopard to change his spots, then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. You see, the sinner's heart, the heart we're born with, can't turn itself to God. But I'll tell you this, that turning must happen. Because if there's no turning, if there is no regeneration by God's Spirit, then there's no salvation at all. When God saves a man... There's a turning. Friend, when the mighty God turns you, if God should grant you repentance and give you a new heart, he'll give you a new heart that can't turn away from Christ. A heart that loves him, that clings to him, that depends on him, that only and ever looks to him for salvation. God causes all of his people to turn. To turn away from ourselves, to turn away from our sin, to turn away from our ruined righteousness. Indeed, to turn away from everything else and turn alone to Christ. Now, this is not a forced turn against our will. Indeed, God's word says, our God makes us willing in the day of his power. You know, I I heard of a little boy who got into trouble for running in the halls of a school, and you can imagine he got sent to the principal's office, and he was forced to sit and be still. But you know, that little boy had the biggest grin on his face, and it was such an obnoxious grin. You can just picture it, can't you? The principal had to ask him why he had such a big grin on his face, and the little boy told him, well... It may look like I'm sitting here and being still and being in in detention. But in my mind, I'm still running up and down the halls of the school. Beloved, salvation is not a forced turning. He makes us willing in the day of His power. And all God's got to do to turn His people is to let the light of His Son shine in the hearts of sinners like you and me. And we turn to him. And never forget it, it's a lifetime of turning to him. God's people, just like a flower, turn to the sun and follow the sun as it goes across the sky. Beloved, when the light of Christ is revealed, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the love of God constrains us to ever look to the Lord Jesus Christ in everything, good or bad, health or sickness, riches or poverty, ever looking to our Lord. Verse 5: verse Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Now we know God's anger against sin is going to burn for all of eternity. He's angry with the wicked every day. But the psalmist is talking about us, God's people, those that God has turned his anger away from, those that he's favored. Now, we know God's anger against our sin has ceased. It's been poured out on his beloved son, our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will never be kindled again against us. So what is the psalmist writing about? I believe he's talking about times of trial, times of chastisement, times of correction. Beloved, in our experience, it can feel like God's anger against our sin has been unleashed upon us. We feel that way in times of spiritual despondency. In our experience, at least, it feels like the Lord has deserted us, and it bothers us because we know that's what we deserve— to be left to ourselves. What we're begging for here with the psalmist is that the Lord would bring an end to these trials, that he'd shorten the time of our sufferings, that trial of feeling like we're not beheld by the Lord. Beloved, if his Anger would go on. It almost seems like he would destroy, destroy us. Verse 6. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Wilt thou revive us again? Every believer has been given spiritual life, a life that never ends. We were born the first time dead in trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, has given His people new life in Christ, and once again, given, uh, rather once and once given by its very definition, you can't lose that life. Indeed, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, beloved. We can never lose the life that God God's given us in Christ. We cannot lose it. And as I said, I'll I'll repeat it again. By its very definition, it can't be lost. It's eternal life. But we do go through times of spiritual despondency, spiritual leanness, where we just feel so dry and dead. And the psalmist is saying here, Wilt thou refresh us? Wilt thou revive us again? Wilt you restore to us the vitality of our life in Christ? Wilt thou enable us to rejoice again in his life? And if you do revive us again, the psalmist says here of God's people that we'll rejoice in thee, we'll rejoice in Christ. Do you remember the confession of the leper? Lord, if thou wilt. That's what it says right here. Lord, if thou wilt, revive us again. And if you do, we will rejoice in thee. Now notice, he says, we'll rejoice in thee. He didn't say we'll rejoice in the blessing, but rather in the one who blesses. Friend, if you have him, you have everything. Verse 7. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, And grant us thy salvation. Lord, show us thy mercy. You've got to show it to me. You've got to reveal it to me. Because I'll never see it unless he reveals it. Lord, show me, I beg you. Beloved, everything spiritual must be revealed. The natural man cannot see it. He can't figure it out. Oh, he may understand it, but he'll never receive it apart from the quickening work of the Holy Spirit. And even his understanding at best is limited. It's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. I look at myself, I look at the world around me, and I think, why does the Lord put up with this? Now one day he's going to destroy this wicked world. But it says here why that hasn't happened yet. Because of the Lord's mercy that we're not consumed. As long as his elect, as yet to be called to himself, are in this world, this world is spared, and it's because of his mercy. God's mercy contrived salvation. His rich mercy looked down upon sinful man and had compassion. His rich mercy elected some to salvation. Now that's mercy. It was God's mercy that moved his son to be willing to suffer and die and take our place. It was his mercy that washed us in the blood of the Lamb. It was God's mercy that didn't leave us naked and covered us, indeed clothed us in the righteousness of his well-pleasing Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was his mercy that brought us to see our need of Christ, our desperate need for a Savior and beg for mercy. Now, that's mercy. And it's God's mercy that leads us right now in the path of his righteousness. Lord, show me your mercy. He showed me his mercy and he showed me everything I need to be saved has been given to me in Christ. Look there again in verse 7, we see the psalmist begging for mercy. He says, Lord, show us thy mercy and grant us thy salvation. That's the message. That's the language of a beggar. Lord, grant me thy salvation. Show me thy mercy. The only way Will ever receive God's salvation is if He gives it. He's the one who must grant it to us. Lord, grant me thy salvation. Verse 8 I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace unto His people and to His saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Now, here are the words of a wise man. He's resolved to hear what God says. I'm going to sit and listen to hear what God says. I pray that's why you're here this evening, not to hear what Joseph David Murphy is saying, but to hear what God is going to say through this nobody. And he's going to speak to you through his word, not mine. For it's not the words of a theological position, not the words of a philosopher or a professor, but rather the word of the Lord, that he'll use in the salvation of his people. And why is that? Because, beloved, his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If you want to know where you are and you want to know where you're going, O God, grant you to hear what God the Lord will speak. So many times in Scripture he tells his prophets, Go tell the people, Thus saith the Lord. I want to hear what God says. Indeed, God's voice, the voice we hear in his word, is the only place we will ever find salvation. Indeed, God's voice is the only place that will find comfort, and it's the only place that will ever find peace. For he will speak peace unto his people. Beloved, the gospel brings peace to his people. It brings them peace in the heart. It brings them peace with God. It brings them peace with each other. Indeed, God will speak peace to his people. Verse 9. The psalmist continues. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. The Lord is always near his people. Indeed, he has promised, I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. He's always near. He's a very present help, in time of trouble. Indeed, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 46. Beloved, he's near his people. Isaiah 46 verse 13. God's word declares, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Beloved, his salvation is near. He places it in Zion. Indeed, he places it in his people, in his church, in the land where we worship him. He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. Beloved, he's near. There's glory dwelling in our land because the Lord Jesus Christ dwells there. Verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Mercy and truth, righteousness and peace are all attributes of God. But all four of those attributes parted ways when Adam fell. When Adam fell, God could no longer be true to himself and have a relationship with man. No longer could God be true to himself and deal in mercy with sinful man. Can't do it. God cannot be righteous and have peace with a fallen man. It's impossible. These attributes of God are at odds with each other. Mercy speaks up and says we must save some. Mercy must save some of these rebels. But truth speaks up and says God must be true to himself. He must be true to his word. The soul that sinneth must surely die. The soul that sinneth cannot be shown mercy. It must die. Peace speaks up and says, now there's got to be some reconciliation between God and man. There's got to be some peace and righteousness, says there's got to be some peace. And righteousness says, I will only have peace when there is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. And no man born of the seed of Adam has that. So there can be no peace. There can be no reconciliation. Looks like none of these four attributes can ever meet together. So have they parted ways forever? Well, those four attributes parted ways when Adam fell. But they've come together in the Lord Jesus Christ, the man born of the seed of the woman. When Christ came into this world, when the Word was made flesh, the second Adam, those four blessed attributes came together. For in Christ, God is true to Himself and shows mercy to sinner sinners. God can be true to His justice because He punished our sins in our substitute. He's true to His mercy and gives us the righteousness and the life that Christ established on the earth as a man. He's true to his righteousness. He still doesn't overlook sin, for God is holy, holy, holy. God doesn't overlook sin. God still only accepts perfect righteousness and perfect holiness. But he accepts us on the basis of the righteousness and perfect holiness of His beloved Son were accepted in the beloved, clothed in His imputed righteousness. God's true to His peace; we have peace with God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That blood that covered, indeed, that put away all our sins, and at that to be remembered no more. In Christ. God is both justif- just and justifier of everyone that believeth on Christ. Beloved, mercy and truth are in full agreement. They are met together. They're hand in hand. Righteousness and peace have been brought back together. Indeed, all the attributes of God are glorified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Truth shall bring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Now, this verse is pointing to the God-man, our Lord and God Jesus Christ. He sprang out of the earth, didn't he? The seed of Jesse, the rod of Jesse. He's from the dust of the earth, a real man, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. But he's God too. He's 100% man and 100% God. Now, I can't explain that, but that's just so. And the Lord Jesus Christ is God, our righteousness. He that came down from heaven and dwelt in the body prepared for him. And the righteous God, our Heavenly Father, looked down from heaven on his Son, and he was well pleased. He was well pleased in what he saw in his Son. He was well pleased with his obedience. He was well pleased with his sacrifice. The offering of his blood and body was a sweet smelling savor to the Father. And now that same righteous God looks down from heaven and is well pleased in every one found in his beloved Son. He sees us in His Son and is well pleased with those who are found in Him. He sees us washed in His blood. He sees He sees us clothed in. His righteousness, and he is well pleased. But you know, that expression there, truth shall spring out of the earth, also refers to truth and life springing up into the hearts of believers. Truth springs up in our hearts, in that good ground prepared by the Spirit. Truth springs up. It's a true love for Christ. It's a true repentance. It's true spiritual life. Well, when does that happen? When it pleased God. When it pleased God. When it pleased righteousness to look down from heaven and move in power and mercy and give life to sinners. That's when that happens. Verse 12. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good. And our land shall yield her increase. The Lord shall give that which is good. Beloved, all His gifts are good. God is good. You think of that spiritual good He's given us. Salvation. A Savior who saves to the uttermost. That's good. Mercy, truth, righteousness, peace, repentance, the forgiveness of sins, pardon for iniquity, He gives us a new nature. He gives His presence. That's good. That's the very definition of good. Indeed, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Verse 13. The psalmist continues. Righteousness shall go before him. And shall set us in the way of his steps. Jehovah, the Lord our righteousness, he goes before us, and we follow in his steps. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 10. Pick up reading there in verse twenty-seven. I never tire of reading this portion, and I, I know that's true for every beloved child of God here this evening. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Beloved, we follow Him. Why do we follow Him? Why do we follow the Lord our righteousness? Because, beloved, as the psalmist puts it ever so blessedly, He set us in the way of His steps. How did He do that? Beloved, He grants His sheep to hear His word, to hear His voice, and we are made to know the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah, who is our righteousness. He goes before us. Indeed, every step we take, the Lord took first, and we follow him in his righteousness. Amen.